Father, as we bring our hearts to attend to your word this morning, we're grateful for the Spirit of God who indwells each one of us, and thus we are truly a community of believers linked together by the Spirit of God who dwells within us. And that constitutes the church. And we're thankful for all of those who are truly members of the Bride of Christ all around the world today. And we know, Father, that in many areas, uh, worship of God is a very difficult thing because of persecution. And even as we prayed last Sunday for your people around the world who are in the persecuted church, we ask that this day they will sense your hand upon them also in a powerful way. And Lord, we ask that wherever your name is proclaimed, you will anoint it and empower it and cause it to change lives. We ask, Lord, that you will do that for us today in this class and in every class of this Sunday School and in the service as it is uh, being carried on concurrently. And Lord, we remember our own loved ones and friends. Many of us have uh, family members and, and good friends who, who don't worship as we do, who don't believe, who, who don't know you. We ask that even today, somehow your spirit will make the reality of who you are uh, true to them and that they might be brought to true faith. We thank you for this morning and for your uh, spirit who will guide our thoughts. In Christ's name, amen. Again, if you'll turn to the 30th chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 30, we began looking at the, um, the first 10 verses of the chapter. I'd like to read them again and for us then to uh, briefly look at the passage. Beginning at Exodus 30, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit. It shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. And you shall make a gold molding all around for it. And you shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them on its two side walls, on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put this altar in front of the veil, that is, near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat, that is, over the ark of the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it, he shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar, or burnt offering or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a libation on it. And Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offerings of atonement, once a year throughout your generation, it is most holy to the Lord. In addition to the great golden menorah that was in the holy place on the one side and the table of the showbread that was on the other side, in this holy place, the outer portion of the tabernacle, there was to be this, this small object called the altar of incense. It was only about 18 inches square and about three feet high. 
It was, as you read there, made of wood but covered with gold, so that it, like the table of showbread, which was also covered with gold, and the menorah, which was made out of gold, would all glisten, of course, in the flickering light of the lamps of the menorah as the priest went in to minister. The scripture tells us that this, this small incense altar was placed right in front of the veil which separated the holy place from the holy of holies. It was to be placed in such a way, we're told in this passage, that it would be directly in front of the Ark of the Covenant and its mercy seat, but on the other side of the veil from the Ark of the Covenant. And the priest, high priest in this case, and later on whichever priest was chosen, would go in twice a day to burn incense on this particular altar. At the time when he was supposed to also trim the lamps of the menorah, he would go in and he would burn incense on the altar. Now we also read at the end of the chapter, and let me do that again this morning so that we link it together. At verse 34, same chapter, verse 34, then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stacti, onica, and galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal part of each. And with it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of, the, of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine, and put it, it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you before the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. That passage tells us what was to be burned on the altar of incense. It tells us what were the spices that were to be used. And we talked just briefly about those last week. A couple of them are, actually three of them are pretty unfamiliar because this is the only passage in Scripture where the other three other than frankincense are ever mentioned. And so what exactly they were is, um, is not really known for sure. But obviously it was, they were important spices uh, for that particular day. So they were to be combined in a particular formula that was given, and, and we read it here, they were put together in equal uh, quantities. And then they were to be burned on this altar of incense in the morning and in the evening. And the scripture tells them that they were not to use this particular combination of incense for any other use. They were not to burn it or make it for themselves to use it in any other way because if they did so, they would then be cut off from their people. And of course, the point of that was they were not to take that which was blended specifically to be used in the holy worship of God and trivialize it by making it a mundane thing. Well, in this passage also, we note that it mentions that on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, one day out of the entire year, when the high priest went in before the ark to put the blood of the sacrifice on the ark, on the mercy seat there, he was also to put some of it on the horns of the incense altar before he went in and put it on the Ark of the Covenant. This, of course, was, was an act of, uh, uh, of, again, sanctifying, if you will, the, this particular little altar of incense that was there and, of course, then the mercy seat itself. Now, the question is, 
what is the purpose of all this incense burning? Most of us associate incense burning with, with Buddhas, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism or something. And those of you who have been to uh, Hindu services or, you know, anything having to do with Hinduism, you know that they keep throwing incense. So they have this little kind of like, uh, what do you call it, a, a little cooking thing. Sort of like what you'd use for a barbecue, but it's kind of a flat pan with a grill on top, you know. And they throw the incense in and they throw the flower petals in and they go through all this hokum while they're doing their little Sanskrit readings. And that's, that's what, for most of us, we commonly associate incense burning with that kind of religion, you know, these, these uh, pantheistic religions. But in this particular instance, we, the Israelites are ordered to burn incense twice a day, morning and evening. So what, what is the purpose of all of this? Well, if you will remember, in the morning and in the evening was also when they were to make the daily sacrifice of the lamb. They were to make sacrifice one lamb in the morning and one lamb in the evening. And so while the lamb was being offered as a burnt offering out there on the great bronze altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle, the incense was being burned inside the tabernacle in front of the veil. Why? Well, the scripture, I think, makes it quite clear, and we'll look at some passages here, that the burning of the incense was symbolic of the prayers of God's people. It symbolized what was to be going on in the hearts of God's people as the sacrifice was being made for their sins day by day, morning and evening. Their prayers were going up, and the symbol of that prayer was the incense being burned there on the altar. Let me read some passages which I think uh, highlight this. In Psalm 141, the first two verses, David, at the time of of the evening prayer uh, says these words, Psalm 141, verse 1, O Lord, I call upon thee, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call, call to thee. My prayer be counted as incense before thee, the lifting of my hands as the evening offering. So the, the symbolism here goes two ways. In David's terms, may my prayer be as the incense, and then may my lifting of my hands be as the evening sacrifice. I think it becomes clear even as we turn to New Testament passages in the first chapter of Luke. Most of us are familiar with the story of Zechariah going in before the Lord and being told about John the Baptist being conceived. In Luke chapter 1 verse 8 we read, Now it came about when he, this is Zechariah, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the burning of incense. So the prayers were offered the incense was being burned. And it was a reminder, of course, to the people of the fact that their prayers were as incense unto God. And then finally, in that uh, beautiful portrait given to us in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, 
It's, of course, talking about the exaltation of the Lamb. In, 20, in verse, chapter 5, verse 8, we read, And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the burning of the incense was, of course, symbolic. In fact, the whole service of the tabernacle was symbolic. Every single aspect of it had symbolism, and I've tried to emphasize that as we have looked at these various pieces of furniture. What we have here are physical acts, physical acts. They slay the lamb, they burn the lamb, they burn the incense, they light the lamps, they put the showbread on the tables. They, the priests eat the showbread at the appropriate hour. All of this was done. These physical acts were done to drive home the importance of the spiritual realities that they referred to. And we have to really try to get a handle on this because there's a tendency sometimes to, for us to think of the Old Testament people as being into this physical thing with hardly any spiritual aspect to it. You know, they just went through the ritual and, and you know, probably for some that was true. But, and we don't go through those, quote, rituals, right? Uh, we have our own little rituals, but uh, they aren't really quite the same. But hopefully, even in what we do, there's a spiritual reality behind it. And we all know this passage very well when Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, but let me again read a couple of verses there because it just reminds us of what we're really dealing with here. And, and it doesn't really matter whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, but John chapter 4, verse 23, when Jesus is speaking to the woman there at the well, he says, when she talks about you know, worshiping in Jerusalem or worshiping up here on, on the mountain there in Samaria, she, uh, he says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So whatever are the physical aspects of worship, whatever we go through as part of our worship, the physical act has no real significance other than the spiritual reality behind it. When we take communion, we take communion in remembrance of Him. And we partake of the wine of communion or the juice and we partake of the bread of communion. And, and it's the spiritual reality behind it, this, this remembrance of what Jesus did for us, that makes it a spiritual act of worship on our, on our part. And of course the church struggles with this, has struggled with it down through the centuries, as you know. And the, and the Catholic Church developed the whole concept of transubstantiation, where uh, upon the proper blessing of the priest, the wine becomes the actual blood of Christ. And, and the bread becomes the actual body. It still looks like bread, still looks like wine. But molecularly, it has been changed, and it really is the blood. And Luther went away from that to some degree. And Luther said, no, it's not really the blood of Christ. It's not really the bread of body of Christ. But he taught consubstantiation, that is, but the presence of Christ is really with it. And, of course, Calvin uh, argued that it was a memorial. It, it was a reminder that in and of itself, it is not a sacrament in the sense that the Catholic Church believed it to be a sacrament. 
but it was an, a very important spiritual commitment on our part, a, a, a kind of recommitting ourselves to what Christ has done for us in uh, recommitting ourselves to the, bo uh, the body of Christ. And so, behind all of these acts, these sacrifices and, and the incense and all this, putting the blood, I mean, you know, it's kind of grotesque when you think about it, putting the blood on stuff. Most of us, when we get our meat and, and you know, some blood, you know, blood on this, this piece of meat, you know. I realize there are some of you who like things rare, but, uh, well, that's too bad. <laughs> but it's the spiritual reality behind it all that is so, so important, as it was for Israelites of that day. And as they stood outside the tabernacle and prayed unto God, the symbolism of the the incense rising up inside there, replicated what was going on outside. And God, as the prayers were made from hearts that believe, God heard those prayers and God responded to his people. Well, let's move on in, in Exodus 30 to verse 11. Verse 11 in Exodus 30. And the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than half a shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel, and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be for a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now again, for us to understand what he's talking about there, we have to remind ourselves that behind this physical act is a spiritual reality. God is not bought off by our physical things. And this is, of course, the struggle that the church has had also down through 2,000 years. What is the role of works in relationship with faith? And the church has tended to get out of balance either by making works everything or making faith everything and trying to say, well, if you uh, don't have works, forget it all. If you don't have faith, forget it all. And, of course, the scripture says you must have both, of course. But, of course, faith is prior to works. And, and the works don't produce the faith. It's the faith that produces the works. And, and that's what James makes so clear. And that's why Martin Luther struggled with the book of James, because he had been raised as a Catholic all of his years. And even though he eventually would break away from the Catholic Church, there were things embossed in him that he couldn't quite shake. And that's why he didn't throw transubstantiation totally out the window, but went with consubstantiation. Uh, you know, uh, it's really hard to break totally with your past if you've been trained from a, a child. And of course, he was a monk. He was a priest. He had been trained in he had his doctorate in theology in the Catholic Church. And so, for a man such as he, it was real hard to totally break away from what had been tradition that he had been accustomed to. But here we find that this physical act has a spiritual rally behind it. This contribution, or as some would call it, this temple tax, 
which was to be given. Every time a census was taken for Israel, now of course, what is the purpose for taking a census? I mean, how many people just want to know just for the sake of knowing how many people there are around? Censuses have always been taken for two reasons, tax and military service. You know, those are the two primary reasons uh, for which censuses are, are taken. And so they were going to be doing this in Israel. And so every time a census was to be taken, every male, 20 years old and older, was to contribute a half a shekel to the service of the tabernacle. Every time a census was taken. So, you know, if the first census is taken when you're 20, and they take another one when you're 30, and then when you're 40, I mean, you've contributed quite a few half shekels down through your lifetime to the ministry of the tabernacle. Now, the scripture here says that it was called a ransom to guarantee against plagues. So if you read that like that and you say, okay, it's a ransom, oh, I better pay so I don't get sick, you know. It's kind of like, like a dispensation or, or, or a, you know, indulgence or something. And that's not what it's talking about here. What we're really talking about here is not buying God's protection. What we're talking about is giving what's also called atonement money or a memorial here, a memorial contribution. The, real, the spiritual reality behind this physical act was that each Israelite, as he committed this half shekel to the ministry of the tabernacle, was committing himself to the universality of Israel, that he was, he was claiming to be a part of Israel and under God. In other words, under God, he was a part of this body. It's like you and me making contribution to this church. When we do so, we are saying we are part of this body of believers. We are an integral part of this body of believers. And we want to use what God has given to us to make sure that this body prospers and moves ahead in what it is doing. That's part of the reason we make a contribution to the, to the work here. It's an expression of our membership. I don't mean necessarily written on a line and official members on a book someplace, but that spiritually we're committed to this body of believers. Now, as the church universal, of course, we should be committed to it uh, in, in every way, and, and that's why we sometimes give outside of this to world missions, to world relief or other organizations, because we feel that that's part of the body of Christ and what is being done, and therefore we are declaring our membership. We even use that sometimes when, my wife and I do, when we get a call. I don't know if you ever get a call in the evening time with somebody wanting some money. But, but that's often what we say. I, we know your work is good, and we know this is wonderful, but we give to our church, we give to world missions, we give to world relief, and we know the vast majority of people out there don't. So you please contact them. We're not able to give any more you know, in this particular area. And to, to us, that's perfectly you know, right, because probably we give more than the caller gives to whatever. Um, organization or anything else as far as that goes. But that's what Israel, these Israelite males were doing. They were contributing to the work of God as an expression of their oneness with this ministry and what is happening. We are part of the tabernacle worship. We're part of the God of Israel 
and we're acknowledging our role in providing for those who perform the priestly service. Scripture makes it very clear that um, when God's people don't provide for the one who is shepherding the flock, they are in sin. They need to provide for the, for the shepherd of the flock. And of course, we kind of build all of that in, you know, with church budgets and everything else. But uh, that hasn't, of course, been the way. Can you imagine the early churches with budgets and <laughs> all this kind of stuff? <laughs> Little house churches? I don't think so. But nevertheless, they, they did provide. And, and in our society, a lot of times, the, the, the shepherd's been provided for with somebody delivers a, five chickens to the door or whatever, you know. But however it happens, this is the way God's people continue to serve the Lord in enabling the ministry to go on. Now, a half shekel wasn't very much money. I mean, it's not like asking for your, your retirement fund here, you know. A half a shekel was about two-tenths of an ounce of silver. Now, two-tenths of an ounce of silver today is worth on the market about a buck, you know. Most people, I think, could afford to contribute a buck towards the ministry of the tabernacle, you know, the equivalent of that at that particular time to the ongoing of the ministry. And, you know, we might say, well, what are they going to do with a buck? Well, you have to think about the fact when they numbered the people 20 and older, we're talking about several hundred thousand men here. So when you start multiplying it, you understand it becomes sufficient to provide for the service of the tabernacle. Now, as is true and as is the way of humans, eventually this will be institutionalized as a temple tax annually. And Jesus, of course, ran into that in the New Testament, as you probably know. But that's not the way it was intended to be. But that's where it ultimately became. Because, for example, when Herod built his temple, I mean, we're talking about a grandiose thing here. And when we're talking about Herod's day, no longer were the priests out there living in their own villages and raising their own crops and raising their own sheep as they were in this day and in the days of David. But they were, uh, you know, they were uh, people who were more city folk, more urban and less able to provide for themselves. Thus, the temple tax became more important. Verse 17 of chapter 30. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall make a, also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. And you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water in it. And Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water, that they may not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister, by offering up smoke, uh, in smoke a sacrifice to the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they may not die. And it shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants, throughout their generations. This is the last piece of furniture that was to be a part of the tabernacle courtyard. Now, the altar of incense was the last piece of furniture inside. This is the last piece outside. Actually, there aren't very many pieces altogether here, right? Uh, we're only talking about half a dozen pieces total that were part of this worship. You compare that to churches that you know of that go back hundreds and hundreds of years in time. You go over to Europe and look at these, and I mean, they're full of stuff. And you realize how simple this worship really was. Very, very simple worship as far as 
the implements that were, that were needed. But here we have a bronze <laughs> laver, a bronze bowl. And this bowl was to be placed between the, the, the great bronze altar out there where the sacrifices were made in the morning and in the evening and the entrance to the meeting house. So it was in between the two. So the priest would come to this to wash his hands before he went in or wash his hands before he made the sacrifice and his, and his feet. The priests were to continually do this. Now, is it because God is offended by grime and dust? I don't think so. After all, God made us from dust. You know, so how could it be offended if a little dust is on our feet, a little grime on our hands? Again, the purpose of this was not that dirty hands made God turn his back. The purpose of it was to establish a reverence for the holiness of God. And that is so important. Because it is not our natural tendency to revere God. It's our natural tendency to be independent, self-sufficient, or maybe dependent on somebody else, but not to be oriented towards God. That is not our natural tendency. If you look at all the religions of the world, and, and what do you discover? There is a fear motivation which causes people to believe in the spirits, you know, the spirit of the tree and the fence and the rock and the whatever else, and, and to appease the spirits, but, but not to believe in God as we know God to be, and to revere him as, as the awesome king of the universe, who, who, of course, should be feared. The scripture says we should fear the Lord. But that doesn't mean a knee-knocking, trembling, biting our teeth, wondering what he's going to do to us next but a fear that, that puts him in his place and us in our place and holds him in, in ultimate awe. And, and that's what this is about. The washing of the hands and the washing of the feet represent something. They represent separation from the mundane, separation from the daily grime of life, and also cleansing from the pollution of this world. I'm not talking about atmospheric pollution. I'm talking about sin pollution. All of this was to be done before carrying on the service of God, before entering into his presence, before doing part of the worship of God. It symbolized the need for everyone to be cleansed from sin before attempting to serve God. <coughs> I think that is really a very, very important truth for us to be reminded of. If we want to serve God, we need to have, as it were, clean hands and, and a pure heart. Now, we can't make our hands stay clean, and we can't make our hearts stay pure. We must invoke God's cleansing upon us for that to happen. The priests already belonged to God. The priests already believed in God. The priests already trusted in God. I'm not saying every priest throughout the history of Israel always did, but... Aaron and his sons, at least two of them anyway, were dedicated to God in their hearts and they did the worship of God out of their own desire. But their hands symbolized their daily lives, which were sometimes stained with disobedience and ungodliness. Just because we are the children of God does not mean that we cannot commit sin. And I think all of us know that from practice and from reality. 
we all know that sin comes our way and and we willingly yield to it uh, probably too often of course but but God offers cleansing and that cleansing is necessary and that cleansing is is of vital importance to our to our relationship with him let me read from Psalm 24 again this is certainly a, a familiar passage Psalm 24 verses 3 and 4 who may ascend into the holy in, into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place he who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully again the clean hands symbolize the the washing of God's spirit from the the daily failures that come into our lives and the pure heart comes through that cleansing the, the heart is pure before God in that we are born again but that pure heart is tainted by by the sin of our daily lives and the the symbol of of having our hands and our feet clean is the symbolism of that taintedness being removed from our hearts as we stand before him and in John 13 verse 8 to me this passage really explains it uh, clearly John 13 verse 8 Peter said to him never never shall you wash my feet and Jesus answered him if I do not wash your feet you have no part with me Simon Peter said to him Lord not my feet only but also my hands and my head and Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of, all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. There was one who didn't have a pure heart, and that was Judas. This is a little bit uh, aside from the point, maybe for a minute, but this keeps coming into my mind. Judas was not a fallen believer. Judas was not one who knew God once and then turned his back. Judas never knew the Lord as his Savior. Uh, Judas is called the son of perdition. Uh, no child of God could be called the son of perdition. Scripture tells us there is no condemnation unto those that are true believers. And yet, Scripture tells us that Judas was condemned. And Judas was cast out. He was the snake in the grass throughout the whole time. And Jesus knew that. And so he was the unclean one in the midst. The other 11 had pure hearts in the sense that they believed, even their, though their faith was primitive and their understanding was incomplete. Yet they were pure-hearted before the Lord. And, and as he washed their feet, he did so to symbolize the, their need for cleansing daily. Of course, I mean, we know also that the very act of foot washing as it is used in many churches today is, is an act of, uh, of helping us to understand the need of humility. It's pretty humbling to wash somebody else's feet. It's not really all that bad an idea. But the spiritual reality behind it was the symbolism of this, this need for cleansing from daily, daily sin. Now, you and I do not have a, a bronze laver to go wash in. I don't think. 
I mean, maybe you do at home, I don't know, but <laughs> there's no bronze laver at the front door of the church for us to, to, uh, to wash our hands and wash our feet in before we come in to serve the Lord here in the house of the Lord. So how do we keep clean? Well, I think, again, the New Testament makes it clear to us, Ephesians chapter 5. Let me uh, begin with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present, himself, present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. She's washed with the water of the word. It is the Word of God that washes us day by day. We, we begin that washing with the symbolism of baptism, which is done in water. And that baptism symbolizes the washing of our sins away and the, cleaning, and the making of a pure life. But then it is the Word of God that cleanses us day by day by day by day. The washing of that Word over our hearts keeps us aware of God's desires and of God's reality and causes us to be ever sensitive to our sin and to, when we sin, to be smitten and, and to go to God and, and in repentance and ask Him for cleansing. That's our foot washing. That's our hand washing. That, that's what Jesus is symbolizing there as He washed the disciples' feet, at least in part. And that's why the Word is so important to us. If we try to live the Christian life without ever touching the Word of God, we're, we're living in a, in a situation where the Spirit of God has no way to talk to us. He has, he has no way to really help us to understand our need for cleansing and that, we've, that we do fail every day. There's not a one of us here who doesn't in thought, word, attitude, or deed fail every day. Well, ever, do you ever try to start a day and think, no, I'm not going to do anything wrong all day long? Can you keep yourself in that sense all day long? I'm not going to do it. No. I mean, we just start living our lives, and before you know it, we explode at somebody because of some trivial thing, you know. Or, or we say an unkind word to someone that really smites them in their spirits. Or, you know, whatever it might be, we, well, I, you know, I'm not going to make a big list here. You can all think of things as well as I can. And... That needs to be washed away every day. It needs to be washed away. So that our communication with God is there. Ever, ever try to pray and you just feel like, oh, this is too much work. It's not going anywhere anyway. And, and then you're, you're aware of the fact that you've really made a mess out of something spiritually and you haven't gotten it straight with the Lord. That makes all the difference. All the difference. I'm not saying that when everything is right, you can't sometimes also feel that way. But we pray out of faith and not out of feeling, hopefully. We're cleansed by the washing of the Word. The application of, a, of the Word of God to our lives washes us day by day by day spiritually. But it also requires us to do another thing. We can't just listen to it. We've got to do it, right? We've got to do it. And I've quoted this many times, but let me just read from James chapter 1. These, these words. James 1, verse 21. 
Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If we feel like sometimes there's no blessing in our lives, maybe that we're not doing the word. We're not obeying what we're learning. We're not submitting unto God and allowing him to take his word and cleanse us and change us and make us more into the people Christ wants us to be. Now, none of us is going to do this perfectly, but that needs to be our goal. And that needs to be our desire in, in life, is to be an effectual doer of the word. I mean, there are going to be many times when we know what the word says that we're going to do the opposite. God doesn't just throw up his hands and go away and say, forget you. You know, you've had your last chance. He's not that way. He comes back and he says, well, you blew it again, but this is what I want you to do. And he cleanses us as we submit and as we ask for his cleansing and then gives us the opportunity to yet again walk in obedience. Sometimes there are Christians who find life really, really difficult and they find it hard to feel that God really loves them. And it's because they are living in direct violation of what they know the Word of God to say. And they have simply decided, God's got to accept me this way, even though I know He wants me to do this instead of this. And uh, God will just leave us at that point. Until we come to the place where we'll submit to Him at that point, we can't move on in our Christian life. In fact, we may not even feel like we are Christians after a while. It's really important that uh, we, we submit to Him in this area. That doesn't mean we'll never goof it again in that same area. But, but it means we acknowledge his supremacy and, 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 and what he wants to do in our lives in this area as he reveals it to us. He's not going to reveal all of it at once to us. You know, you've all had the experience I've had. You read a passage of scripture and you come back and you read it it's another time. You read, and every time you read it, something else comes out of that passage you never even saw there before. You sure can't remember seeing it before. And it's because you weren't ready yet for what it had to say. And, and you can't read the scripture enough so that you know everything it has to say to you. You can't. It will always yet speak again in another area because God is advancing a step by step by step by step along the way. He just doesn't dump the whole thing on us at once. You're like a wheelbarrow. There you are. Do it all. Oh, man. It's kind of like Moses here. We're going to be getting to the passage soon where Moses is saying, God, you've said this to me, you've said that to me, you've said this to me, how in the world am I going to do all this, you know? How am I going to make this tabernacle and all these things and start this worship and anoint all this stuff and I haven't got idea where to begin? And God says, don't worry, Moses, <laughs> I've taken care of that. And we'll read that passage and talk about how he, how he did that. But that's the way God is, one little step at a time. That's what really bothers me about there are certain groups who call themselves Christians who want to short-circuit this whole thing. And they expect that by doing one thing or having one thing happen in their lives, they can make this huge leap up here instead of being down here as a Christian. Now they're up here super saint. 
you know, and, and they've got so much more than everybody else. And they did this by one little leap, you know, of one little thing becoming a reality in their life. And I don't think that's the way God works. One little step at a time, one little step at a time, as he brings us along in his way. Now, let me just finish by saying God does not tell us the size or the shape of this laver. We're not told anywhere how big it is. All we're told is that it had a stand to it and it held water. So we can imagine all kinds of things, I suppose. We are told later in 1 Kings what the laver was that was used in the great temple that was built by Solomon. I don't think that this was much like that because the laver that was built by Solomon was four inches thick, 15 feet from rim to rim, and seven and a half feet deep, 10,000 gallons of water. They're in the Sinai Desert. <laughs> Where would they get 10,000 gallons of water? These poor people, I mean, if, and they have to carry this thing from one site to the other and put it up again. Can you imagine? I don't know how many tons that Solomonic thing weighed, but it wasn't anything a bunch of priests were going to just pick up with, <laughs> put it on their shoulders and walk off through the desert with it, you know. It was not a portable thing, so obviously what we're talking about is something very much smaller. And as we're going to see, <laughs> the thing was made of hand mirrors that were dedicated or committed by certain dedicated women there. Well, how many hand mirrors would it take, you know, to make a four-inch thick, 15-foot wide, seven-half-foot deep laver? You'd take a few. <laughs> Quite a few more probably than was available. So uh, it, it, was, it was probably a pretty small little basin. But... Uh, Next week, we'll continue on and look at the dedication of all of these features.